everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. Today I wanted to talk, I guess I want to do it briefly, we'll see how it goes, <laughs> but about the Indian Removal Act. So I remember learning a little bit about this when I was in school, but of course, you know, a lot of the history we learn at the public education level is not necessarily that diverse. And even if they do cover a lot of topics, it we don't really go into too much detail. So the Indian Removal Act was signed into law by President Andrew Jackson in 1830. And basically, the president granted the lands west of the Mississippi and remove the native, um, the Native Americans or indigenous Americans off of that land. So you had some people who did go peacefully. A lot of these groups of indigenous Americans fought back. And despite that, the federal government forcibly relocated them. So some of you may have heard of the Trail of Tears. That was the movement of people from the Cherokee Nation, which happened in 1838 and 1839, around that time period. And so 4,000 Cherokees died as a result of that. And so that's why it's called the Trail of Tears. And a lot of the justification for doing this to these people was that they had failed to assimilate into basically white American culture. But it's important to understand that and I know we've talked about this in kind of, I mean, maybe not as directly, but we've talked about this concept of assimilation that for a lot of these groups of people within, you know, I guess specifically this time for those who are Native Americans or Indigenous Americans, as a macro racial group, right, as a group that's all lumped together, even though it's multiple tribes and cultures, et cetera, the same way we do like, all um, macro racially lump black people together, macro racially lump Asians together, et cetera. These people were often living in very hostile environments. So even when they did want to assimilate, they were not given the opportunity to. They weren't given real equality and they certainly weren't given any equity. So I think it's interesting that the justification, of course, because the government's going to try whatever they can to justify doing this. Even though the justification is that they're not assimilating to society, we know that these people didn't really have a chance to do that. And that even when they did, it was still seen as never quite enough, that they weren't willing to give up enough. And really, there's a, there is something to be said for people having to give up their culture to assimilate to American culture. And by American culture, generally, that means white American culture, and still not reaping any of the benefits of that citizenship or of that, we'll say, cross-culturation or culturation. Um, I don't necessarily want to say full assimilation because many ethnic communities, even ethnic European groups, have retained aspects of their individual culture, even when they have largely adopted white American cultural values or um, American societal you know, canonical values. Now, another reason why this displacement took place was because like throughout American history, there was a desire to put the people that the government wanted onto that land to occupy it, essentially, to maintain the sphere of influence of the American government and essentially of what they consider to be like the right type of people who would be living there. So sometimes these people are referred to as homesteaders. So there's also the Homestead Act, 
which is going to be coming into place around this same time period. Well, 30 years later, but you know, in the span of historical time, that's really not any time at all. That's still a very short amount of time in between the two, but they are definitely related. But these lands are being that were formerly owned by different indigenous tribes were being opened up to mostly white Americans, the people who had immigrated in from Europe, who didn't have land. And if you think about it, especially at the time period that it's taking place, slavery is still very much a thing. So when you think about like the Southern agrarian culture, a lot of the land is already owned by very wealthy people who are using it to generate you know, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in capital for their personal families, but also, you know, billions of dollars industry-wide. Like, when you think about all the money that's made off the backs of enslaved people and maintaining the institution of slavery in the southern states. So, there's not a lot of land for just any random American citizen to be able to purchase. So, moving indigenous people off of their land is, in my analysis, a way to prevent basically backlash from white men who were not from wealthy families. Now, of course, there were other groups of people also, right? So you did have free blacks in the north. You're going to have some pockets of free groups who are also non-white and also non-black. But keep in mind that those people are not in the same population, like number-wise, as white. So the racial majority was very much a white racial majority at that time that we're dealing with. So to me, it seemed like the American government wanted to prevent a, a type of rebellion for people who wanted to have access to be able to make money because you needed land to do that, right? Land equals wealth. And it's been that way in this whole hemisphere the entire time. This is why the Spanish colonized. This is why the Portuguese colonized. This is why the English colonized. The lands in Europe had been bought up, right, by the church and by the very wealthy. So they started, they had already been doing trade between different Asian and different African groups, but then they started coming over to the new world, arguably not necessarily first, but they're the ones who colonized and enslaved groups of people to be able to generate profit for, in their eyes, the people who did not come from the monarchy or the aristocracy or the upper levels of the church. So that's not a new concept. In the same vein, you have a lot of Americans at this time who are free but don't have any access to be able to generate wealth. And there were a lot more working class people than there were wealthy. So I believe that removing the indigenous people off of their land from the point of view of the government would stop any type of rebellion or joint workings together of people of different races to be able to come together and fight collectively for more access, for more land, for more of what they perceived to be and what they had been, you know, taught about the Constitution, about the whole point of the country, to stop them from fighting for that together and to stop them from collectively getting what was best for everybody. So moving natives off of that land was part of that equation. It's very unfortunate, right? You had a lot of people, like as mentioned, who died as a result of this. You had a lot of people who were 
purposely exposed to diseases like smallpox, etc. Some of these people were given blankets with smallpox on them so that they would die off faster, especially given the history of disease in this country and how a lot of indigenous people had already like eight out of eight to nine out of 10 indigenous people in this hemisphere had already died in the 16th century as of the 15th and 16th century as a result of disease and as a result of not having the exposure and the immunity to a lot of these diseases. So doing this, giving them purposeful blankets with smallpox on it was a way to take them out even faster. So even when they did relocate, their numbers would shrink even more and they'd have less fighting power to stop themselves from being relocated or at least stop them from fighting back from the government who was sending troops in to forcibly remove these people from their lands. Now, what I had been interested in was knowing that a lot of native tribes in the U.S. owned slaves, owned like African slaves. I wondered when they were relocated, especially since a lot of this was before slavery was abolished, if they were allowed to take their slaves with them or if they had to relinquish them to other plantation owners, right? Or if those people were confiscated, the enslaved were confiscated and then sold again on the market to a non-native slaveholding entity. Now that's something I'm interested in, but I haven't done the research to find out if that happened. And I wonder if I would even be able to, because they would have had to document that sort of a thing for me to be able to, you know, spend the time to research it, to look at the documents, etc. But if anyone knows, or if any resources for that, please email me because I am interested in that topic. And even taking into consideration the Homestead Act of 1862, the federal government passed this and said that people could take I believe it was up to 160 acres of land if they agreed to farm it. Now, they did have to file an application, and generally there was a fee associated with that. They had to prove that they had improved the land um, through farming or through infrastructure of some kind, and then they had to file for a deed of title, or I believe they called it a patent at that time. So that's when they would get the paperwork claiming that they did fully now own it. Now, some people have caught on to the fact that I think like Whoopi Goldberg was saying on The View that her family were homesteaders and that they were able to get land that way. But most black Americans at that time were not able to capitalize on the Homestead Act and found it very hostile when they did try because, again, they were in the extreme minority. So they would have had to deal with people, everybody at that time had to deal with people bribing officials. There weren't really that many people who were working these offices to file for the applications. Um, The main office was in Washington, D.C., which is pretty far away from the Homestead area. And they didn't have as many agents to go around and check to make sure that people were being truthful or that they were being honest or, you know, being law abiding. And so there was a lot of instances of bribery, coercion, harassment, of people who were trying to file these patents and take land because, of course, some people are going to try to take as much as they can. There are different accounts for how much these people may have had to pay. So some accounts say, I believe people paid 
either a little over, I think it was a little over a dollar per acre. Some of them, I know for sure that people who had fought in the Civil War, now I don't know if they had to fight for the Union. I would assume so, but I'm not 100% sure. But people who were veterans of the Civil War, they could deduct their time served from the amount of money they had to pay for the application fee or per acre. But for a lot of people, even even though for us, right, it seems like a dollar or something an acre is like, what? <laughs> I mean, that would be feasible for most Americans at this point. At that time, it wasn't feasible for most Americans. So this is, at that time, a substantial amount of money to pay per acre. And it's important to note that even though the Homestead Act started in 1862, that it really went through... Um, the 1970s. So it remained in effect until 1976. And there were still people who were, well, the office was still um, accepting applications for homesteading in Alaska until 1986. Like they got a 10 year extension. So this wasn't over by far as fast as I think people realize it. And I would be interested to know if people even know that that's how their families were able to get these tracts of land in some of these states in the um, what is now the Midwest, but at that time was considered the West. If they were able to get some of that, um, excuse me, that that's how they were able to get a lot of that land that right that, of course, they probably hopefully know, right? I don't know how a lot of these states deal with the indigenous history of the local tribes from that area. And if they recognize that at all, so some people may know the tribes that occupied that land before, but I would be interested to know if people knew that it went into the late 70s and for Alaska into the mid 80s. Something else that's worth noting here is that after the Mexican-American War, so that was fought from 1846 to 1848, you know, that's also in, the, in between this time period here, that that opened up the far west, right? What is now considered our full western states. So California, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. I know I'm missing something, but, you know, the western states. Because it did used to be the northern half of the country of Mexico. So when the U.S. government took what is now the western states as, a, as the spoils of war from the Mexican-American War... They also displaced Mexicans who were living on that land, who, of course, now, because the border had been redrawn at that point in 1848, they're now Mexican hyphen Americans. So that's where that phrase comes from about them not crossing the border, the border crossing them. Like, that's where it comes from. So a lot of those people were also displaced. Now, Mexico is a nation, right? So it's not a race. And I always am very intentional about these things. But you're going to have a lot of people who are going to be clearly indigenous descended Mexicans and some people who are going to look more white descended Mexicans because they have more European heritage or do have full European heritage. Um, but a lot of indigenous descended Mexicans lived in that area. So they were also subject to being removed from that land even though they did have legal paperwork saying that they lived there, even though they had legal paperwork from the Mexican government stating that they owned that land, now they are no longer seen as the 
you know, the right people to be living there as far as the point of view of the American government. So their lands are also confiscated throughout history um, and throughout the same time periods, again, through the 60s, through the, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, etc. A lot of those people are also displaced from their land to try to give that land to white Americans. And it's a lot of the same justification, right, that they're not assimilating to American society, which basically means white American society, that they are using their land to perpetuate their own culture, that they're in that if they live there, it might as well be Mexico, right? That's the point of view of the American government. So by taking their land away from them, just like by taking the land away from the Native Americans or Indigenous Americans who were in what is now the Midwest, it's to put the people that the government wants on that land so that they can perpetuate American culture, they can be representatives of the American government, and that they will have a say in the politics of that land, the laws and acts that affect that land, and the people who are living on that land can maintain superiority even when they're not in sizable numbers, but as they will increasingly become the you know, racial majority of those areas. And if you're familiar, I think I've talked on this podcast before, maybe I didn't talk that much about it. But if you're familiar with like some of the history of Texas, like when Mexico did own our West, like the Western states, um, and Texas was basically like the Eastern, the Northeastern border of Mexico and the U.S., Mexico opened up the territory of Tejas, or Texas as it's now called, for Catholic immigrants from the United States to migrate to that territory to farm it. But the stipulation was is that they couldn't bring slaves because Mexico had outlawed slavery already in 18, I think 1829. So you had to be Catholic. So they were hoping for... um, I know there were like Irish Americans who were encouraged to go there. I think I want to say maybe some Italian Americans, but they were mostly focused on having Catholic Americans come there so they could increase the influence of the Catholic Church on that land. And they could also have, you know, um, generate revenue from the farmers who came. Now, of course, just like throughout American history, once the American settlers got there, they realized, hey, we don't want to follow the rules. So we do want to bring our slaves and we don't want it to just be for Catholics because the U.S. is largely a Protestant nation and Catholics have been persecuted in this country. So they didn't want that Catholic influence in the area. They didn't want, of course, allyship between European immigrants who were Catholic and the Mexican government um, and the country of Mexico, which was largely Catholic based at that time and continues to be. So they decided to go to war, and that is a lot of the impetus for the Mexican-American War. Um, And Texas just being a part of the territory that they were like, okay, well, we're already here, you know, from the point of view of the United States. Well, we have Americans there. We're currently semi-occupying the space. Let's just take more than we said we needed, or let's take more than they're willing to give. And so... Robert E. Lee was actually the um, military leader who headed the Mexican-American War from the from fighting for, well, I guess, from the point of view of the United States. Like, he fought for the U.S. during that war. And he's important because he fought for the Confederacy a little bit later in the Civil War. So the Homestead Act in 1862 is 
signed by Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, and especially because slavery was, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was not a full year later, I don't believe. I don't think it was a whole year later, right, in 1863, that ended slavery in the Confederate States. So I've talked about Lincoln before. It's very, very early on the podcast, so it would have been from like early 2021, I believe I would have talked about this. Um, I think it's called Lincoln Ain't Really a Boy, <laughs> um, but it's one of my first podcasts. And I talked about how Lincoln is a politician. So thinking about it politically on paper, him abolishing slavery in the Southern states, opening up a lot of the native territory that is west of the Mississippi River, allows people to sort of like rush to that area and just take it, um, which would further, of course, affect the Southern economy. So it makes sense that he would do that. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Homestead Act of 1862. I wanted to talk about the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and sort of relate it to the Mexican-American War and also just the practice of removing people from the land. I guess I could end with, you know, there's been some reparative legislation that's been going on, for example, in California. We'll see if it extends elsewhere. California tends to be a leader about a lot of these things. So when California does something, other states sort of follow suit. But there were even Black American families who were forcibly living in segregated spaces, and they were forced off of their land also for the same reason. Now, no one's disputing that they're American, right? They've been here for several centuries. They have largely assimilated into American society. They've had their culture taken from them um, multiple times in multiple ways over centuries of time, but they're still not seen as the right people to be living there. And with regard to Los Angeles, some of this land was beachfront property that was segregated. But once they decided, okay, well, we want to expand, you know, the the white only spaces along the beach, or we want to make this tract of land for like wealthy development or things like that, they would displace black people who lived in those areas and forcibly remove them as well through um, eminent domain, which is kind of like the new type of removal. I guess I Never really thought of it like that until just now. But, you know, like the government, if they sign a removal act, that's very, very brazen and blatant, right? That they're removing people. But if they do it under the guise of eminent domain, then it makes it seem like it's for the public good, that it's for the general public. And so you do have to believe. So many people, because we have rules surrounding things like how many schools you have to have, like certain access for infrastructure within the city, you have people whose homes are you know, taken down because they have to build a school because now there's a, you know, too many people to go to one of the schools that's there. They have to build another one. So eminent domain allows the government to take property away from people and compensate them for it. But of course, oftentimes the compensation isn't actually the full value of the land or the property itself. Um, now these black families historically didn't receive any compensation. They were just forcibly removed or were run out by, other forces like the Klan, targeted legislation, over-policing, or things like that to um, sort of like de facto move them out of the land as opposed to like de jure, like signing something or going through an eminent domain process. So as a reminder, de facto is 
um, segregation in practice and de jure is like segregation by law. Um, but in this case, it's not necessarily segregation. It's just doing something in practice would be de facto and then doing something by law would be de jure. Okay, so I'll stop the podcast for now. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it and I will see you on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Bye.